Yvonne Chu is a political scientist, studies authoritarianism. So when she was offered a job at Hong Kong University, she had mixed feelings about it. When I went to Hong Kong in 2010, I I had a wait-and-see attitude. Um, I wasn't sure that things were going to go badly wrong, but I was I thought that they might. Being an academic, I was concerned about issues like free speech and civil liberties. I remember interviewing for the job and asking about that. And one of my uh, eventual colleagues assured me, he said, no, 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 you don't have to worry. <laughs> um, China is becoming more like us. We're not becoming more like them. And I thought to myself, that's not the impression I've been getting, but okay, we'll see how it goes. Um, he also followed it up with asking me, you don't publish in Chinese, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he knew Which, if you published in Chinese, the situation mm-hmm. might be different. Right. Yes. When Yvonne talks about what it's like to live in Hong Kong, the experience sounds a little surreal, even a bit spooky. In your daily life, when you're in Hong Kong, everything seems fantastic. Um, you know, there are these luxury shops. There are also little tiny shops. The food is great. Everybody is super busy doing something. But there are little things here and there. There's there are increasing number of mainlanders in Hong Kong. There is the increased use of Mandarin as the main language of communication for certain industries. There's also the secret police. You know, and, and everybody kind of knows they're there. They will come and talk to some people occasionally, um, ask them questions about who they've been talking to, what they've been doing, um, especially if you have family uh, in mainland China. They will put a little more pressure on you. Sounds threatening. Yeah, it is. It is for them. It's a. It's again. It's a weird place because if you are a Westerner, um, you can live in Hong Kong and not notice any of this. Um, you could actually live a, a life in this fantastic bubble, <laughs> where you get all your groceries from Western grocery stores. You you live actually a really nice, um, comfortable life. This summer, activists have forced China to confront the cost of this nice, comfortable life by taking to the streets filling up the airport. And I think the weird thing with the protests is that now they're forcing everybody to take notice of what's going on around them. Today on the show, why Hong Kong keeps protesting. If you want to understand what's been happening in China this summer, Yvonne says you need to look backwards, see how the protests that came before this one have built up to this moment. And whether the past offers hints about how this summer's confrontations could end. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So you've been really eloquent when you describe how the Chinese understand their own relationship with the government. You've said some older Chinese look at Hong Kong's relationship with Beijing and they see it as a parent-child relationship. Can you explain that a little bit? 
Yeah, it's actually a very traditional view of politics, the paternalistic model of politics, which is that the government is a parent, everyone else is a child. They're not citizens. They're not citizens with autonomous wills, reasonable desires that must be respected. And so the job of the government is to guide your child. Sometimes it's a wayward child. Um, you can see the, the paternalistic language when Beijing talks about Hong Kong and also when the Hong Kong government talks about its own people. Carrie Lam, the chief executive, refers to the protesters as children. Hmm. Yeah. They've not moved to a model of genuine representation, citizens who have legitimate demands and legitimate desires. How do the protesters see it? The young, how does the younger generation see it that's different than maybe their parents do? I think they feel condescended to. Um, I think that they look around and they see a population that and I would agree with them, um, has all of the hallmarks of a population that's capable of self-rule. They're well-educated, they're rational. So I think the young people recognize that they are capable of self-rule and that they're no longer willing to be treated as if they're not. Ivan was living in Hong Kong when this realization began to dawn on her university students. It was 2014, And she watched protests begin to mushroom. Young people started occupying Hong Kong's streets. They were demanding open elections. They stayed there for months, earning the nickname the Umbrella Movement because of the gear they carried with them to protect themselves from pepper spray. One day, Yvonne even went out into the crowd and joined them. I actually brought my swim goggles and a poncho, um, and I had my had my running shoes on because um, I thought they were gonna they were gonna use more pepper spray. Um, and I got there right before the first tear gas went off. The protests eventually petered out, but at the time, Yvonne wrote that any kind of catalyst could set them off again. That's what seems to have happened this summer when Hong Kong's chief executive tried to pass a law that would have allowed the city to extradite prisoners to China's mainland. Yeah, I think the population is, they're primed um, now. They're much more aware, um, they're much more organized, and there's willingness to make a political stand. That was one of the things that surprised me and my colleagues back in 2014. We were surprised for two reasons. One is that there's a reputation among you know, the Hong Kong uh, youth at the time that they were, we called them the strawberry generation, right? Strawberries are delicate, they're easily bruised, and we thought of them as... Uh, wanting to be coddled and wanting to be protected. We also thought they didn't care about politics <laughs> and they didn't care about um, civil liberties that what they really wanted was, you know, to get their nice education and land a nice government job and live a comfortable life. And when they actually went out onto the streets and in large numbers, my colleagues and I were surprised. Frankly, we were really proud. <laughs> um, we didn't think that they had this in them. We had a lot of respect for them to have cared enough about this problem to take to the streets in that way. And and in, you know, a semi-authoritarian society that for them to do that bears enormous risk. So what makes the protests this time around different? To me, it looks like they're much more disaggregated. There's not a leader. They're not in one place. Yeah. So I think two things. One is that the issue at stake cuts across many more sectors. And if you look at who who came out in support of the umbrella movement in 2014, which the issue was universal suffrage. And in this time, who came out against the extradition bill, 
the opposition to the extradition bill now has been much more widespread. Every major sector in Hong Kong society has opposed it, and that includes the business community, which is traditionally more in line with the government. So that's been surprising, and I think that's that's the reason you get two million people out on the streets. The way Yvonne looks at it, the extradition bill cut right to the heart of Hong Kong's rule of law and civil liberties, things that are holdovers from when it was under British rule, things that differentiate it from mainland China. Hong Kong is supposed to maintain its autonomy from the mainland until 2047. That's the deal they struck back in the 90s when the UK gave Hong Kong back. But this extradition bill sets up a way for China to transfer Hong Kong's prisoners to their own control now. They said you could send people to um, another jurisdiction that had grossly different laws, no due process, um, no judicial protections guaranteed to you of any kind. So I think that's the main reason that there's been more widespread opposition to this bill. Well, the moment we're in now is kind of interesting because it seems like that bill has been set aside. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, the protests are continuing. The protesters aren't just in one place and people can avoid them or manage them. They're popping up at the airport and they're trying to talk to people who are coming through Hong Kong. Things are out of a single person's control. And it seems to me like that's why you're beginning to see things like the clashes that happened in the last 72 hours where people at the airport, protesters, were found to have been beating people. And in some ways, that gives ammunition to people who say these are just thugs and people who are complaining. Right. That is that is always the risk of every protest movement because you, you need... You need enough buy-in um, to the cause, right? And so you need a broad enough support. But every time you widen your base of support, you get people who people whose behavior you can't control, people who want to add other issues, right? And so every protest movement has um, this tricky balance to maintain. Um, they do better and worse jobs at maintaining that balance. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about exactly what happened at the airport this week? Right. So we don't have full information yet, but it looks like in the middle of this massive sit-in at the airport, which ended up causing cancellations of flights, uh, the protesters found a guy that they suspected, uh, a guy who was pretending to be a protester. They suspected him of being undercover in some way. You can find these videos online. Protesters are holding a man down, interrogating him for wearing a press vest, but having no press ID. They empty the contents of his pockets onto the floor. And they, when they searched him and tied him up, it turns out that he was. He was actually a reporter for the Global Times, which is one of the main mainland Chinese uh, mouthpiece papers. And there is apparently a video in which he actually says, yes, I am you know, a reporter and you know, I support Hong Kong police. I support China. Uh, you can beat me up now. And the protesters did. There is one clear shot of a young man thwacking this guy with some kind of plastic stick. All the while, he's lying on the floor, curled up in a fetal position. Yeah, and there were fights um, in the airport to try to get uh, to rescue this guy and get him out. Um, so and that caused a lot of disruption. Um, and it's bad publicity for the protesters in combination with all of the uh, disruptions of the flights. And it's also really different from how the protests have worked until now. You've described protesters who are quite 
fastidious. They they leave money when they take things. They clean up after themselves. The protesters have been both. Um, they're, for the most part, nonviolent, um, most part uh, very fastidious and polite. Um, you also get these scuffles uh, with the police. And it's the risk of a broad protest movement. You need that broad support, but you also cannot control the behavior of every single person in your camp. As a journalist, part of what I think is so interesting about this really complicated dynamic is that many people, citizens in mainland China, look at protesters in Hong Kong and may see them as a little uppity. I'm wondering if Mm -hmm. you can explain all that. So the first thing to understand is that um, people in China have varying degrees of access to information. And so some of them can get access to the actual news and to a fuller picture of what's happening in Hong Kong. Most of them do not. Most of them only know what is being fed to them by uh, government media sources. So, um, but yes, there is a definite sense of resentment towards Hong Kong because the impression is Hong Kong has been given so much privilege, right? It is much wealthier, it has all these freedoms, and yet it's still unsatisfied. And again, we're back to the um, the paternalistic relationship. It's an ungrateful child, and I think that has a it says a lot about the position Beijing thinks it's in. It thinks that it can't maintain one country, two systems. Hmm. I think there's a possibility that you could um, have a Hong Kong that is as free as as it is now without offering more freedoms to mainland China, but maybe not. Maybe it's possible Beijing is right that um, they wouldn't be able to sustain the level of control that they do in mainland China as long as Hong Kong system persists. And so from their perspective, they're doing a, really, a very rational thing. They're trying to gradually put the squeeze on Hong Kong, gradually move them towards you know the mainland system, because the worst thing from their perspective is a sudden drastic change in 2047. That would be that would be catastrophic for China because Hong Kong would Hong Kong would implode. Mm. <laughs> um, so by trying to gradually squeeze Hong Kong, you know, in some sense, like boiling the lobster, um, they're hoping that the transition will be much easier for them in 2047. I wonder if you think there's any chance of the squeeze going the opposite way. I mean, there are some voices of dissent in mainland China. You have Ai Weiwei, the artist. He seemed to get some citizens activated after an earthquake caused a lot of damage and many children were killed. I just wonder if looking at these protests in Hong Kong, whether that would change any of the way that mainland China sees itself. Right. I'm not sure that Hong Kong itself will be enough to cause a massive change in China. I think it's I think it's going to have to be something on a much larger scale, like a mass economic shock, maybe a maybe a recession, even a natural disaster like the earthquake. It, had some effect, but limited, right? I mean, you're, you're looking at a giant country, um, one that is living under much more media control than we can conceive of. I think for the Chinese government to be forced to change, it would have to be some massive external shock, like an economic recession or a war that it loses. I mean, I look at the scenes of protests, though, and I, I really can't help but think about Tiananmen Square and protests that was just crushed. Why do you think this will turn out differently? And what are, what are the signs that the Chinese government is thinking about this differently, if they are? 
Right. I think that um, China is in a very p- different position internationally now than it was in 1989. Um, in 1989, it was not a global power. It was still very poor, you know, reasonably isolated internationally. Now it's aspiring to be not just a global economic power, but um, a real political leader um, and moral leader in the international community. And so it understands that it needs to behave differently in order to acquire that kind of respect and moral cachet. So to bring in troops um, to Hong Kong would be an absolute disaster for China, and it has no interest in doing that. What's interesting is that from, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, I have no doubt that there are some, you know, some officials, say, in the U.S. government who would actually might prefer a harsh crackdown in Hong Kong because it would put China in a very bad position. And China knows that. So they're 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 stuck in this difficult place, right, where they want order in Hong Kong, but they're not willing to use the kind of force that might be necessary to quell the disorder. Do you compare the protests that are happening now to any particular protest movement in history and say, look, it could turn out like this or it could turn out like that? That's a tough one. The closest analogies would be anti-colonial protests. But the other thing I think about is so if you if you think about the major civil disobedience, anti-colonial protests, um, you know, Gandhi and other movements like that, they only worked because they were dealing with a government that was capable of feeling a sense of shame, right? The British government, they had a history of the abolitionist movement. You had this historical adherence to liberal democratic values that they were not practicing in their colonies. Um, but because those values were there and were being espoused, then they could be shamed over it. And that matters. The reason you use nonviolence is because you want to gain the moral high ground. And the only reason the moral high ground is worth anything is because other people recognize that this is the moral high ground and they put pressure on the government to respond appropriately. But in this case, in Hong Kong's case, you're dealing with a government that has none of that. It doesn't have a sense of shame over the use of violence. It doesn't have a sense of shame over um, the lack of due process, the lack of any of rights. Um, and so I think there's much less possibility for the Hong Kong protests to be successful hmm. in this respect. Hmm. Are you in touch with any of your students who you taught? Um, a few, yes. So some of them have moved on um, to and have left Hong Kong, um, but a few. What do you hear from people who are in Hong Kong now? I hear a great sense of despair. There is enormous pessimism over the future of Hong Kong. I don't get a sense that they're going to give up anytime soon, but they they are aware that they may fail. Um, or that they may bring about something much worse, that it might provoke um, a harsh crackdown. You said you were proud of them. It sounds like you still are. I am. I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I've i wanted nothing more, actually, the last couple of months. I really wish I were still in Hong Kong. I've almost gotten on a plane several times to go. But uh, my family keeps reminding me that my comparative advantage is writing and speaking um, and not hand-to-hand combat with the cops. (laughs) So um, I am enormously proud of them. They, for the most part, have shown incredible discipline and um, organization and self-reflection. There are exceptions. There are always people in any movement who uh, they're not going to behave appropriately. They're going to do silly things. But overwhelmingly, they've been very disciplined. And it's, it's impressive to see. Yvonne Chu, thank you so much for joining me. 
You're welcome. My pleasure. Yvonne Chu is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She was formerly a professor at the University of Hong Kong. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. If you're looking for something to listen to right now, the three of us have a recommendation for you. Go on over to The Gist. Today, Mike Pesca is talking to John Hickenlooper. He's one of those folks who is still running for president as of this recording. There's some rumblings he's going to be running for Senate, though, which would be kind of interesting. Anyway, go check it out. All right. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.